So if you have your Bibles, please uh, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 4. And as you're turning there, uh, I did this uh, on week one just to explain to you what the tabernacle is all about. Some people call it the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. It was a place where God had descended from the mount and now was dwelling in the presence of his people. And God gave them instructions on how they are to live their lives because a holy God living with people, if they're sinning, a holy God cannot reside with sinful people. So they had to cleanse themselves. They had to purify themselves. So the way they did that was they would come into the tent of meeting, a place that was set aside. You entered in, and right as you entered in, you had what you call as the bronze altar. That's where the sacrifices were burned. And right next to the bronze altar was a laver or a basin where they would wash the animals. And as they stepped forward, they would get into what is called as the tabernacle area or the tent of meeting, which had the holy place and then the most holy place. There was a curtain dividing the bronze altar. Only the priest could enter that holy place. And in the holy place was the altar of incense and the table of showbread. And as you look forward, you see another curtain. And as you walk through the curtain, you walk into the holy of the holies. Only the high priest entered that place once a year on the Day of Atonement, also called as a Yom Kippur. In the Holy of the Holies was the tabernacle. Movies have been made on it, about it. On the tabernacle was a mercy seat and the cherubim, where the blood was sprinkled once a year on the Day of Atonement. So this is kind of the layout of the tent of meeting. We had looked at chapter 1 of Leviticus, and in chapter 1 of Leviticus, we looked at the burnt offering. You sacrificed a perfect animal, one without blemish, and you burned it completely on the bronze altar. This animal was sacrificed and burned on the altar, became an atonement for the sins of the worshiper. As the worshiper would bring the animal, lay his hand upon the animal and sacrifice the animal and then burn the animal on the bronze altar. That was chapter 1. It stood for atonement, propitiation, appeasement, God being satisfied that no longer is our sin standing in between him and us. In chapter 2, we looked at the grain offering. The grain offering was something that the nation of Israel, the people, would bring into the tent of the meeting area. It was grain, fine flour. And they did that because as an act of consecration or dedication. 
Yes, my sins have been appeased. Yes, my sins have been atoned. And now I consecrate my life to the Lord. And so they did the grain offering in chapter 2 of Leviticus. In chapter 3, because my sins have been atoned for, because I am now consecrated to the Lord, I'm dedicated to the Lord, now there is peace. Peace between God and peace with one another. A horizontal peace leading to a vertical peace. And that was the peace offering. And if you were here last Sunday, you heard about the peace offering. And if you want to listen to those things, those are all the sermons, those are all available on our website. As you can see how we took what was there in the Old Testament and we connected it to the New Testament. And we saw how it applies to us as Christians, as believers. Today we'll be looking at Leviticus chapter 4, verses 1, all the way through chapter 5, verse 13, and also chapter 6, verse 24 through verse 30. It's called as a sin offering. Some Bibles or some, some books that you read will call it the, the, the offering that is in terms of not just the sin offering, but purification offering. That you've been cleansed. So it has to do with sin. The topic of sin uh, raises a lot of eyebrows. Why? Because we live in a culture where sin is unpopular. Sin is okay in the Bible, as long as it's not personalized. I mean, you can preach Romans 3.23 all day long, and you will have people say, Amen. But... If you go to the same people and ask them to confess their sin, their response would be, well, no one is perfect. You see, sin looks good in the Bible, but not in the realm of people's lives. And they would look at you scornfully because now you are becoming judgmental. You see, some churches hardly use the word sin. They use words such as faulty behavior, negligence, irresponsibility, mistakes, wrong, but not the word sin. I mean, they would use the word love and grace. They would even uh, sprinkle the word gospel many times in the sermon, but you will hardly hear the word sin. And even if they use the word sin, they would not push it to the next level and say, well, we need to repent of our sin. There's no call for repentance. People are hesitant to talk about sin. It upsets people because they think that it is too negative. And I've mentioned this before. If you've been coming to this church for a while, you know that we talk a lot about sin because I know I sin a lot. And I know when we look into the Bible, we all sin a lot. 
What better way to show people how much we care for people by reminding them that they are sinners? Because our root problem is sin. Every issue we face in our lives stems from sin. Think about this. We cannot get along with people. Why? Because of sin. Husbands cannot get along with their wife. It's because of sin. We cannot get along with other people in this church because of sin. If we have relationship issues, it is because of sin. Now, you may say, Pastor, uh, it's the other person's response that caused me to respond the way I responded. <laughs> no, my beloved. Yes, the other person acted in a certain way because of his or her sin, but you responded the way you did because of your sin. See, our root problem is sin. But I'm glad our root problem is sin because sin has a solution. Because we know our root problem is sin, we know that the gospel solves it. We have the answer to that because Christ died on the cross for our sins. We have victory because Christ died for us on the cross. We have victory over the power of sin. And one day, we will have victory over the very presence of sin when we see him face to face. Until then, we will be a work in progress. Because no one is perfect, actually, on this side of eternity. Aren't we glad? And that's why we deal with sin, because if sin is not our problem, you know, beloved, our condition is absolutely hopeless. Absolutely hopeless. Because then we don't have a Savior. The Bible reveals sin as serious and horrific. Let me give you four truths, four truths that we will glean from Leviticus chapter 4 and 5 and 6. First, we see that sin is universal. Second, sin is objective. Third, sin is repulsive to God, and it displeases Him. And finally, sin is forgiven if we confess and turn from it. You know, I love Leviticus, and I was thinking about five points, so I could give you five on that. But I just had four points. So we'll stay with those four points. Let's look at the first one. Sin is universal. The sin offering that is mentioned in chapter 4 applies only to sins committed inadvertently. I mean, these sins were not premeditated sins or intentional sins, and we read about that in Leviticus chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. So if you have your Bibles and look into your Bibles, you see that Lord's, the Lord's, the Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying, if anyone sins unintentionally, that's not premeditated, inadvertent, unintentionally, in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, 
and does any one of them. Unintentional sin. Then he goes on to list the different people that commit those unintentional sins. First, if a high priest sins, and we read that in verses 3 and 4, what is it that has happened if a high priest sins? If one who is a, a priest sins, he would bring a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull, kill the bull before the Lord, and then he would take some of the blood of the bull and, and bring it into the tent of the meeting. So here he has slaughtered the bull and now he's taking some of the blood and going into the tent of the meeting. That means he is going into the holy place. Not the holy of the holies, because that was only once a year. He would now step into the holy place, if a priest sins. It says, he will dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. That's the curtain. And the priest puts, shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of the fragrant of incense. That's the fragrant incense. That's the altar of incense before the Lord. That's in the tent of the meeting. And all the rest of the blood he shall pour out of the base of the altar of the burned offering. That means he comes back out and he pours the rest of the blood on the bronze altar. And he goes on to say, it says that the tent of the entrance of the meeting and all the fat of the bull of the sin offering he shall remove from it, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that's on the entrails. Just as these were taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offerings and the priest shall burn them on the altar of the burnt offering but the skin of the bull and all its flesh with its head and its legs, legs and its entrails and its dung, all the rest of the bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place, to the hash heap, and burn it up on a fire of wood. So that's what happens when a priest sins. It was not burned on the, the altar. He would take it out outside the camp and burn it outside the camp. Because the priest had a special role to play in ancient Israel. The gravity of the sin is being highlighted here. That it has to be a valuable animal. It has to be a bull. The blood is taken into the holy place, sprinkled on the curtain seven times, sprinkled on the altar of incense in the holy place, walks back out to the bronze altar. There's blood sprinkled. And then he takes the sacrifice outside the camp and burns it. Significant for a priest. We don't have high priests today. Jesus is our great high priest. Aren't we glad? But we can surely find a parallel to the New Testament. And we have elders and pastors in the New Testament. And we read about this in James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. 
For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. The sin of those in authority is viewed as more serious than those of who lead. So in fact, when the pastor or an elder sins, they're judged with greater strictness. And we read about this in Luke chapter 12, verse 48. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. This is why Satan goes after pastors today. Beloved, you need to be praying for your elders and for your pastor. Because when the pastors and the elders fall, it affects the Christian community at large, but it also affects the church big time. Because leaders have the great potential to lead others astray and bring dishonor to the name of Christ. Yes, spiritual leadership is a wonderful privilege, but it comes with a great responsibility. And the sin of the priest is taken seriously. Next, we come to the next category in, in verse 13. If the whole congregation sins. Are you there? Chapter 4, verse 13. If they had inadvertently sinned. Verse 13 says, If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they do any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, and they realize their guilt. When the sin which they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd. Now again, it's a bull offering. The assembly will bring it, the whole congregation will bring it. And I was thinking about this, I said, how could the entire congregation sing? I'm sure you're thinking about that too. We have an example in the Old Testament. If you remember the story that was found in the book of Joshua, chapter 9 where a group of people came to make a treaty with the nation of Israel, the Gibeonites. And the nation of Israel as a whole, including the leaders, they were responsible for it. They did not consult God's word. They did not spend time in prayer. They did not take counsel from God. They rushed into making a treaty with the Gibeonites, and they realized they were actually the people from the neighboring city. God was not pleased with that. And that's when the entire congregation sins. And so here it says, if the entire congregation sins, what happens? And I'm going to paraphrase that for you. The elders would put their hands on the bull while it was being killed. The priest would then take the blood, and he would now go into the holy place, past the curtain, not the holy of the holies, into the holy place. And he would sprinkle seven times on the curtain, and then he would sprinkle blood on the altar of incense. Then he would come out back into the, the altar of the bronze altar, sprinkle blood there. And then he would carry the bull outside the camp and burn it outside the camp. So something similar with the priests, except the elders are the ones who lay hands on the offering. Not the priest. When the priest sins, the priest laid his hands. But in the congregation sins, the elders are the ones 
that lay their hands. You see that in verse 15 of chapter 4. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the, before the Lord, before Yahweh. Now, why do you think the elders should lay their hands? Because they were held responsible for the congregation. We see this parallel in the New Testament as well. Would you please turn with me to Acts chapter 20? Keep your fingers in Leviticus chapter 4. Acts chapter 20. In the New Testament. And we read in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And so here we are, we are seeing the warning that is being given to elders that they got to pay careful attention to themselves and to the flock. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or caretakers. They were stewards to do what? Caring for the church of God. This is the same principle we see in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You see, the elders of the church have a responsibility to mimic Christ and to be examples of the flock of Christ. They are entrusted with this task of keeping watch over the flock of Christ. So that's why the elders of the congregation lays their hands on the offering, on the sacrifice, when the whole congregation sins. Now let's move on. What happens next? There's another group of people, and that's found in verse 22. When a leader sins, doing unintentionally any one of the things that by commandment of the Lord, his God, ought not to be done, and realizes his guilt. So again, it's an unintentional sin. It's a leader, a tribal leader. What happens? Let's look at this, because there's a little difference here. Or the sin which has been committed is made known to him. He shall bring as his offering, not a bull, but a goat, that shows that the sin of the tribal leader is not on the same level as that of the priest or the congregation. So he shall bring as his offering a goat, a male without blemish, and shall lay his hand on the head of the goat. So if the tribal leader or the community leader of whoever is the community in charge, when he sins, he will bring it and he will lay his head, hand on the head of the goat and kill it in the place where they kill the burnt offering before the Lord. So that's on the bronze altar. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the burned offering. So the priest is still here. He's sprinkling some blood on the horns of the burned offering and pouring out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar of the burned offering. And all of its fat he shall burn on the altar like the fat of the sacrifice of peace offering 
So the priest shall make atonement for him, for his sin, and he shall be forgiven. So if the tribal leader sin, everything revolves around this place, on the bronze altar. The tribal leader brings the offering, kills, lays his hand, kills it. The priest collects the blood, sprinkles it on the altar, burns the animal on the altar, part of the animal. But there's something unique about this. The rest of the sacrifice is eaten by the priests. It did not happen in case of the priests and the congregation because taken outside the camp and burned. And the Bible is very clear. If you look further in Leviticus chapter 6, it says if a sacrifice, if the blood is taken into the holy place, you shall not eat of it. It has to be taken outside and burned. That shows that their sin was significant. Now let's keep going. Because there's another group of people. Look at verse 27. If any one of the common people sins, so now we have finished the tribal leader, now it's a common people, uh, an individual. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, and he realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring his offering a goat, a female without blemish. Now you see the category difference. If the tribal leader sinned, he brought a male goat. But if the individual or the common person sinned, he brings a female goat. Orf, without blemish, for a sin which he has committed, he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the halter of the burnt offering and pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. Its fat he shall remove. The fat is removed from the peace offering, and the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord, and the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. So if the common man sins, he brings, lays his hand, the priest collects the blood, pours the, sprinkles the blood on the altar, burns a portion of it on the altar, and the priest consumes the rest. And I said as we started off this point, sin is universal. Do you see how sin is universal? It affected the priests. It affected the congregation. It affected the tribal leader. And it affected the common man. Sin is universal. Isn't that what uh, we read in the Bible as well? In... Um, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as you read Leviticus 5, and we'll come to that later, is even people at different economic levels sins. People who are rich sin. People who are poor sin. Sin is a universal problem all across the board. The issue is recognizing that we are sinners. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10 reads this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That means if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So sin is a universal problem. It affects all of us, my beloved. Everyone born into this world has sinned. Even the little bundle of joy that you're carrying in your arms at one week or 24 hours after birth is a 
sinner. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin is a universal problem. Let's go to the next truth. And that is sin is objective. And we read this, we see this truth in Leviticus chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. So when I say sin is objective, we need to understand what sin is. Yes, sin is objective. And I want to lay down some definitions for sin. Let, let me lay down some presuppositions to understand what sin is. Sin is a failure to align ourselves with the standards of God. Period. Sin is missing the mark. Sin is not something that changes from time to time. It's not situational. It doesn't change from culture to culture. It's not different from different cultures or different groups. You know, the Bible is unchanging. God is unchanging. The Bible says in, in Hebrews, it says God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if the unchanging God has given us something, that's also unchanging. So if God has said that sin is sin, it's unchanging, period. Whenever you live, wherever you live. You see, sin is not an, a figment of your imagination. You and I don't get to decide what sin is. God has already decided that. Ignorance is not bliss. If, you, if God has said it in his word, then it is sin whether you agree with it or not. I mean, you may drive on a one-way street in the opposite direction, and you would see the blue light stop you. The cops will come up to you and say, please, right? Let me write a ticket for you. Say, for what? Well, you were driving on a one-way street. Well, I didn't know. I didn't see any signs. It's still an offense. You have broken the laws of the country. And so what happens is you pay a fine for that. Even your ignorance is immaterial. You have broken the law. You see, when God told Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, you shall, not eat of any, you shall eat of any tree in the garden, but of one tree you will not eat of it. What is the tree? The tree of knowledge of? The knowledge of good and evil. So God is telling Adam and Eve, look guys, whatever you think you ought to be doing, here's my standard, right? Here's what I want you to do. Don't live your life in the Garden of Eden. Don't live by your gut feelings. Don't make your conclusions. You may not be feeling guilty about something at the end of the day. And just because you're not having any guilt feeling doesn't mean that you haven't sinned. You just need to listen to what I'm saying. This is my standard. I told you so. And if you want to be self-willed, you want to be autonomous, you want to be the king of your universe, you are going against my will. I'm not here to make you feel good about yourselves. I'm here to let you know I'm Yahweh, and what I say is absolute truth. You live by that. That's what God was telling Adam and Eve. You don't get to decide what's right or wrong. I've already said that. You see, sin, my beloved, is objective. I'm thinking about this. As the worship team was up here and Salah was leading the group, 
He had already given them a set of uh, scores that you had to play, and the violin was playing on a set, and the guitar and the, the drums and the keyboard. What if someone decides to say, I'm going to play my own score? Are they in track with solo? Obviously not. That's what breaking the law is all about. God has already set the score. You live by that, whether you like it or not. And some people think, well, God is a mean God. I heard this. Why does he have to come up with all these laws and all these standards? He's mean. Well, why shouldn't God have laws? Don't you and I have laws? Don't the country you live in have laws? The state that you live in have laws? The city that you have live in have laws? By the way, didn't your parents have laws? I had laws in my house. I had the right to create those laws. You say, well, I don't like God. He's a mean God. I don't have any laws. I live without any laws. Oh, well, you say so? You do live by a set of laws that suit your morality. Let me show you how. If I come up to you and I grab your cell phone from your pocket or from your purse or wherever it is and start scrolling and perusing through all the information on that, what would you say? Pastor, that is brutish, right? And you will scorn at me and you'll say, that's not what you do. How can you do something like that? You don't have my permission. You can come and take something and, and, and do what you want to do. You see what that person has done? The person who said, well, there's no law and I don't have my own laws. I've actually created his own set of laws or her set of laws to suit their own morality. Yes or no? So everyone has laws. Even the person who says, I don't want a God with these standards live by a set of laws. You go to that person and say, Abortion is a sin. They'll say, ah, oh, no. Everyone's got the right to choose. Okay. Then you start talking about racism and homophobia. And what would they say then? Uh-uh. You can't say that. The person who said everyone has got a right to choose, now, when you started talking about racism and homophobia, all of a sudden says, you can't say that. So they create their own laws to suit their own standard of morality. You know what? If people can come up with their own laws that suit their morality, don't you think the God of the universe, the absolute truth giver, can have a set of laws for his creation? So you see what I started off saying? Sin is what? Objective. Now let's understand what Leviticus is talking about. When you look into the book of Leviticus, chapter 4 and 5, there are two types of sin. There is unintentional sin, and there is intentional sin. Now hang in there with me as I explain this, as I build up the scenario. Under unintentional sins, there are two types of sin. Leviticus chapter 4 deals with unintentional sins. That means, sorry... I didn't know that. I'm sorry, it just happened, right? There are two types of unintentional sin. 
Leviticus chapter 4 deals with one type of unintentional sin and Leviticus chapter 5 verses 1 through 13 deals with the other type of unintentional sin. We will talk about intentional sins later. But let's keep going with the unintentional sins. If you read chapter 4 verses 1 through 35, I want you to pick up in verse 2. If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done. So he's doing something which is not supposed to be done. That's one type of unintentional sin. And it's called the unintentional sin of commission in case you're taking notes. Unintentional sins of commission. Then come down to chapter 5. Leviticus chapter 5 verses 1 verse 1. If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know of the matter, yet does not speak, and then he keeps going on to all the list, these are sins of omission. Sins of omission. So chapter 4 deals with the sins of commission, and chapter 5, verses 1 through 13, deals with the sins of omission. What is the sin of commission? The sin of commission in chapter 4, verses 1 through 35, is doing something that God's word tells us we should not do. And then the sin of omission in chapter 5, verses 1 through 13, is not doing God's word. Not doing something that God's word teaches us that we should do. These are both unintentional sins. Let's look at the unintentional sins in chapter 4. We don't have anything specifically mentioned in that. All that we have mentioned is the priest is committing a sin. The congregation is sinning. The leader is sinning. And the common people are sinning. Means all of them are committing the sin of commission. That means they're doing something that God's word tells you not to do. Meaning you knew that you shouldn't do it. The command was clear. But you inadvertently or unintentionally slipped into it. You did not premeditate it. It just happened. You just walked right into it. You stumbled upon it. A lapse of judgment. Uh, the Hebrew word there is the word shega. And the meaning of the word shega means wandering off. This is not something that you were premeditating and planning. It just happened. You just wandered off into that sin. It was an accident. You see, God's word really defines for you what is right and what's wrong. Even though you wandered off into it, it is still objectively a sin. God doesn't give it to you at your discretion and say, Okay, you decide. Whether it's sin or not, God says, even if you wandered off into it, it is still a sin. No gray areas. Let me give you an example. Just thinking about this. Let's say you're waiting at the grocery store. In line, and in one of those unguarded moments, a thought comes to your mind. Maybe a lustful thought. It's a sin. But if you confess that sin, what happens? God forgives you. There's forgiveness. You don't have to walk around with a guilt feeling because God cleanses you. He purifies you. And we read that in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 35. 
reads, And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed. He shall be forgiven. If you confess your unintentional sin, it was just a lapse of judgment, he will forgive you. He will cleanse you. He will purify you. That's a promise. But oftentimes, you stand in the grocery line, a lustful thought comes to your mind, and you know it's sin, and you know you need to confess it, and you need to replace it with something else, but you entertain that thought, and you drive that thought at 50 miles per hour, and 60 miles per hour, and 75 miles per hour, and eventually you are now into it, you're fantasizing about it, and it's going deeper and deeper. You're toying around with it. Now it's no longer unintentional, is it? You know it's wrong. And you say, well, let me keep going with it. Let me increase the speed. Let me see how close I can get to the edge without falling. It has become intentional. But even here's the catch. What happens after you got to 80 miles per hour and you knew that was sin and you confessed that sin? Does God forgive you? Yes, my beloved. Our God is a forgiving God. He will forgive you for those sins. Even though that unintentional has become an intentional, He will still forgive you. Amen to that? Amen. Now, let's go to chapter 5. And let's look at the sin of, the sin of omission. We looked at the sin of commission in chapter 4. Let's look at the sin of omission in chapter 5. And we see in chapter 5, verse 1, that there is a sin of a person who is failing to give testimony. That means he is seeing an act, a crime, and he fails to testify. If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. Sin of omission. Look at verses 2 and 3. If a person touches something unclean, whatever sort of unclean thing, it was considered unintentional, sins of omission. Verse 4, if you took a rash hold, it would be unintentional sin of omission. You knew something should be done and you did not do it. You just rashly took an oath. Well, what happens if you confess your sins? God will forgive you. And we know that he's a forgiving God. It was premeditated. You just did not do it. You were willfully defying that. You did not obey. It's no longer unintentional. God will still forgive you if you confess that sin to the Lord. God is a forgiving God. Unintentional sins, whether sins of commission or sins of omission, God will forgive you if you confess your sins. I wanted to show you the second category of sin, which is intentional sin, and the Bible talks about it, but in the book of Numbers. So would you please turn with me to Numbers. Numbers chapter 15. Verses 27 through 31. Numbers chapter 15, 27 through 31. 
If a person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat a year old for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him, he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. Now here's what I want you to notice. Verse 30. But the person who does anything with a high hand. Do you see that? A person who does anything with a high hand, whether he's a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people. Why? Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be upon him. This is called eye-handed sin. That means you know it is wrong and you don't care a rip about it. Someone comes to you, men, and tells you, please, don't look at those things on the screen. Those are wrong. Those are bad. Don't do that. And you say, I don't care a rip. You go to the men and say, I didn't like the way you talked to your wife, the way you treated your wife. You got to treat her. Well, I don't care what you say. I'll do it my way. You see what eye-handed sin is all about? You know it's a sin, and you're defying God, and you say, I don't care. A willful defiance against God. God treats the sin seriously. Would you be forgiven for it if you confess your sin and repent of it? Yes. Because there is no sin under the sky that God cannot forgive. All that you need to do is confess your sin and repent of it and turn from it and God will forgive even those eye-handed sins. God forgives those willful defiances. You see, there's a New Testament parallel here. It's called church discipline in Matthew chapter 18. And you don't have to go there, but I'll explain Matthew chapter 18. If a brother is sinning, is a member of the church, it's a sin that's a public sin. It's a sin that's evident to you. It's whatever it is openly practiced. And you see that, you discover that, you're supposed to go to him and tell him about that. If he listens to you, good. You've gained your brother. But what if he doesn't listen to you? The Bible says take two or three with you and go to him. If he has listened to you, amen. Wonderful. He confesses his sin, forgives us, is forgiven, and he's restored. But what if you go to him and then still he says, you know what, I don't care a rip about it. The Bible says, go tell it to the church and treat him like you would a tax collector. It doesn't mean that you shut the doors on him and you don't let him come into the church. You let him come into the church, but you will treat him as if he's an unbeliever. That's called church discipline. Do you see the similarity between intentional sin being cut away from the camp and the Bible telling in Matthew chapter 18, you shall consider him like he's an unbeliever? It's the same thing. Intentional sins has 
a consequence to it if practice. God does not tolerate it. God said to the nation of Israel, if you are finding someone practicing an intentional sin, he is cut off from the camp. The same thing in Matthew chapter 18. If you're practicing something which is an intentional high-handed sin and you're not willing to repent, you are cut off from the camp. You're treated as an unbeliever. And churches don't do that because I think the churches today in America are sterile. They're afraid to deal with church discipline. But the Bible says that you need to practice church discipline. Here's what we need to understand. Intentional sins, you say, well, I'm just going to live in that sin for a while. But there's a problem. You don't know if you will get another opportunity to repent of it. Hebrews gives a clear warning on intentional sins. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 through 31, and I'll read a few verses here. If you go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Yes, there is judgment. Because you don't know if you'll get another moment. You say, well, I'm going to live in that sin. I'm going to enjoy that sin more and more. But what happens tomorrow if you die? You haven't been forgiven for that sin. You have living your life like you were an unbeliever. So yes, Unintentional sin and intentional sin, and God forgives both sins. But you see how objective sin is? God doesn't leave it to us to decide what is sin. God has already said in the Bible what is sin, and he deals with it accordingly. Let's go to the third point. Third, sin is repulsive to God, and it displeases him. Sin is repulsive to God, and it displeases him. Let me tell you something. If you read Leviticus chapter 11, Leviticus chapter 19, Leviticus chapter 20, Leviticus chapter 21, we read that God is a holy God, and because God is a holy God, and we are his people, he has set us apart to be a holy people. We are sanctified. It's the word kadosh in the, in the Hebrew. It appears over 100 times in the book of Leviticus. So if you were to be asked, what is the theme of the book of Leviticus? The theme of the book of Leviticus is God is a holy God. God is holy, completely holy, and separated from evil. I told you as I began the study of the book of Leviticus that God was dwelling on the mountain in the book of Exodus. And Moses would go up to the mountain... And then God told Moses, you need to go build a tabernacle and I am going to come and dwell in the tabernacle and the Shekinah glory is going to cover the tabernacle. I'm going to be dwelling in your presence. But we know that a holy God cannot dwell with unholy people. And so the unholy people have been given a set of regulations that we have been going through in the book of Leviticus on what we need to be doing to purify ourselves. You see, God does not tolerate unholiness. Sin displeases God. That's why he wanted the people to purify themselves and cleanse themselves. 
You see, we live in a time when the doctrine of justification has been so much celebrated. I mean, like never before. You go to churches, they will celebrate the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification has been taught and celebrated, which says essentially this, that if you're in Christ, God looks at you, and you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. There's nothing you can do for God to love you less. There's nothing you can do for God to love you more. You are period accepted in the beloved. That's a great truth. And we would say amen to that a thousand times. But one thing that gets missed out when the truth is being taught is this. That the God who justifies is also the God who sanctifies. A sanctifying God is a God who expects us to live a life that is holy in his presence. Sin displeases God. God is not happy when we sin. God is grieved when we sin. And we read that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. It says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed in the day for the day of redemption. Now you know that I've got two sons. I love my sons. There is nothing they can do under the sky that will ever cause me to disown my son. They will always remain my sons. And I will be their father. There's nothing that will undo that relationship. But there are times they would displease me. They would grieve me. There are times I would be humbled and I say, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Wow, thank you, Lord, for these boys. And there are times I pull my hair apart and say, Lord, what did I do? Why? Because sin grieves an earthly father. In the same way, beloved, sin grieves a heavenly father. God is displeased when you sin. And so that's the third point right there, which says God finds sin despicable, it's repulsive to God, and it displeases Him. And what happens when God is displeased with sin? The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, He disciplines whom He loves. God will discipline His children. Let's go to the fourth point in closing. Sin is forgiven if we confess and turn from it. I want you to reiterate two truths there that I want you to walk away with. First, when you come to Christ, when you get saved, God forgives you your sins. You are drawn from the kingdom of Satan. You are drawn in, you are drawn in place into the kingdom of the light. You become a son of the Most High God. You are adopted into His kingdom. He justifies you. He sanctifies you. He forgives all your sins. Psalm 103 reads this. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. He forgives you all your sins, past, present, future, everything. Your slate is wiped clean when you are in Christ Jesus. All your sins are forgiven. But we need to do something. We need to daily purify ourselves from the pollution of this world, from the filth of this world. We need to confess our sins regularly. 
We need to repent of our sins. We are to make repentance a lifestyle. That's what 1 John 1.9 says. If you confess your sins, whether it's unintentional or intentional, if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all your unrighteousness. He completely purifies you and cleanses you once and for all. But you also need daily purification. I wanted to give you a closing warning on this. A warning and an encouragement. Warning to those who are not willing to see sin as sin. You see, sin is like bad breath. Everybody else around you notices that. Except you. And when it is brought to your attention, you need to deal with it. In the same way, in the same manner, if you don't deal with sin in your life, when it is brought to your attention through a fellow believer in Jesus Christ, you are living your life in disobedience. You're hardening yourself to sin in your life every day. And there will come a point in your life when you will no longer have an opportunity to turn from that sin. So repent of that sin as you get to see it from the scriptures. And I want to give you an encouragement. Encouragement for those who are walking around heavy laden with the guilt of sin in their life. Constantly living under the guilt of sin. Weary of your sin. Exhausted from the Lord of your guilt. I want to give you an offer and show you an offer that in Jesus Christ, he says, come to me. All who are laden, who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When you confess your sins to the Lord, God will forgive you and cleanse you of all your unrighteousness. The Bible says that very clearly in Leviticus chapter 5, verse 10 and verse 13. It says, your sins will be forgiven. Verse 13, your sins will be forgiven. You see, God is a forgiving God. No matter who you are in your social status, no matter whether you are a king, you are a governor, you are a president, whether you are a school teacher, whether you are an office goer, whether you are a gardener, whether you are a student, whoever you are in the social category, God forgives your sins, whether you are rich or poor. In fact, the beauty of Leviticus chapter 5 is this. If you can't afford a lamb, just bring a few birds. If you can't afford a few birds, just bring flour, an ephah of flour, and your sins will be forgiven. No one is excluded from forgiveness. All you have to do is come before his presence and say, Lord, I messed up. I'm sorry. Forgive me and cleanse me and purify me. And you know, when you do that, what happens? Psalm 32 says, there is joy in forgiveness. If you have lost your joy in your Christian life, it may be because you're living in sin. Take this opportunity. Examine your lives and confess your sins to the Lord and rejoice in what he has for you. Father, we thank you for the joyous opportunity that we have to come to Christ and have your sins forgiveness, have our sins forgiven. We thank you for the blood that was shed on Calvary's cross, as Christ died for our sins.
appeasing, satisfying the wrath of a holy God, atoning for us. And so now as a result of this, Lord, now we can come to you for daily cleansing, purifying our lives for you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children say, Amen.